Hi, I'm Amy Silverman, and I'm co-curator of Barflies, the live reading series held at Valley Bar in downtown Phoenix. Each month, we give writers a theme and invite them to tell their true stories on stage. This episode is from our live holiday show, held at the Van Buren in Phoenix in December 2018. The theme, as it is for Barflies every December, Eating Christmas. First, Angelica Lindsay Ali gets a little fiery in Blue Plate Special. My sister's boyfriend called me the skull. I did have a rather large head sitting atop a very tall and lanky eight-year-old body, so while it seemed cruel at first, I didn't mind. The moniker fit. Maurice was tall, had a radio announcer's voice, wore a cool leather jacket, and he was funny. He was the kind of boy that high school girls crushed on and high school boys wanted to be, but he was my newfound favorite big brother. I was an awkward third grader, but to Maurice, I was the skull. To him, I was cool. And here he was with my sister, tucking me into bed on Christmas Eve. They had just come from the mall where my mom had sent them to buy new pajamas for all of the little kids in the family. I quickly changed clothes and hurried to bed at 8 p.m., hoping that if I fell asleep immediately, Santa would make his rounds early and I could rush the arrival of Christmas morning. Maurice and Veronica came into the room to tuck me in. Maurice said something funny that made his voice the last thing in my memory before I finally drifted off to sleep, anxious to see if the Barbie dream house I wanted was waiting under the Christmas tree. Somewhere around midnight, I smelled something cooking. It seemed strange for my dad to fire up the grill on a cold, snowy night, but I was certain that what I smelled was barbecue. I dreamt about the novelty of eating my dad's fall-off-the-bone ribs and hot butter corn on the cob for Christmas dinner, an infinitely more delicious idea than the big dry ham we always ate. Except I wasn't smelling barbecue. I could feel someone grabbing me from the top bunk. It was my eldest sister, Kelly. Angie, wake up, the house is on fire. I was still half asleep when I jumped down from my bunk bed. I couldn't see anything in the room, just a faint light from the Christmas tree that seemed to glow amidst the haze. I immediately began to cough as my lungs filled with smoke. I rushed out of the door of our three-bedroom Cape Cod bungalow on the west side of Detroit, holding my little brother's hand. He had been asleep on the bottom bunk in our room. I stood outside in the cold, the whole neighborhood illuminated by snow that had just fallen a few hours before. I hadn't enough time to grab a jacket, so I stood there shivering, watching black smoke billowing from the top floor of our house. That's where our parents' room was. I looked around and did a quick survey. Mommy, Daddy, Kelly, Michael, Chris, Jeremy. Where was Veronica? My older sister had a room in the basement, it was a cool teenage hideaway, complete with a wooden door that had an actual lock and key and a stereo and a full-length mirror. I had danced in front of that mirror just days before, writhing my non-existent hips to the latest record by Vanity Six. Veronica was known for locking her door for privacy, which the little kids knew was cold for grown-up stuff that was none of our business. I panicked when I realized that she could still be locked in that teenage paradise, inside our burning house. 
I asked my mother, where's Ronnie? But she shushed me quickly and walked me and my younger brothers next door to Mr. and Mrs. Irving's house. We were to wait there while they figured out what was going on. As we walked up the path to the house, I could hear the fire trucks barreling down the snow-covered street. I had never been in the Irvings' home. They were an interesting couple. Mr. and Mrs. Irving were retirees in their 70s and never had children. They were both very short. I was eye to eye with them, and I was only halfway through elementary school. They looked almost identical, like two Russian dolls that had somehow been darkened by the sun. Mr. Irving was the color of hot chocolate and had a kind smile. Mrs. Irving had the complexion of a butterscotch cookie and wore her hair in long silver braids that hung to her waist. Their house was warm, but far too quiet. Our house never had much peace with six children and two adults crammed into a space meant for a family half our size. Mrs. Irving was handing me a cup of tea and holding my brother when we heard a knock on the door. I could see the lights of the fire trucks whirling through the living room window. I looked up and saw my brother Michael. It's time to go, Angie. Mom's waiting in the car. I didn't move. Where were we going? We live next door. It's time to go. Come on, I have your coat and your shoes. We have to go now. I moved toward the door and standing on the porch, I saw her, Veronica. She was coughing and shaking, but she was alive. I hugged her and we walked to my mother's green Lincoln Continental and piled inside. I fell asleep on the long drive to God knows where. When I woke up, we were in the parking lot of a Holiday Inn. It had to be the suburbs because there were no nice hotels like this near our neighborhood. We got situated in two adjoining rooms. I shared a room with my mom and dad and two little brothers. The teenagers had their own room next door. It was after 2 a.m. and we were tired, but we were together, we were warm, and most importantly, we were safe. The next morning, I woke up before everyone else. I found a big pile of presents on the floor. I knew the ones wrapped in pink were for me. I could tell by the shape that my Barbie dream house was in one of the boxes. But the idea of three floors and an elevator full of pink and yellow goodness had somehow lost its luster. This wasn't the Christmas morning I'd imagined. My mom and dad woke up and hustled us to get bathed and dressed. Where were we going? Our house couldn't have been ready to go back to already. I was half asleep last night when I heard the older one say something about an electrical fire in the walls and more snow had fallen overnight. Leaving seemed impossible. Had my mother inhaled too much smoke? We did leave, but we didn't get very far. Next door to the Holiday Inn was a 24-hour diner. Its neon sign flashed sporadically, but we could tell it was open for business. My entire family sat down in two separate booths, and my dad said, order whatever you want. He never said that. We usually split meals on a rare trip to a sit-down restaurant. My eyes scanned the menu looking for the most expensive and delicious item I could find, but it was a diner. So my dream of a luxury meal was soon thwarted. I did, however, happen upon the blue plate special of the day. Salisbury steak with mushrooms and mashed potatoes, a true Midwestern delicacy. 
My mother never let me have a whole Salisbury steak to myself. I always had to split it with Chris, my younger brother. But Daddy said I could have it all to myself, and I was not going to miss my chance to finally not have to share. I ordered a cup of hot chocolate with extra marshmallows. When the waitress brought it to our table, the gravy dripped from the edges of the plate, and I could see steam rising from the mashed potatoes. It looked and tasted like heaven. You know you can't eat all of that, my dad said when I was halfway through the mountain of gravy-covered mash. He was right. I cut half of my remaining meat patty and plopped it onto my brother's plate. The family talked, laughed, drank what seemed like endless cups of hot chocolate, and never once mentioned the fire. I don't know if we wanted to forget what happened or if we were too engrossed in our time together to care. Family dinners had recently become a thing of the past as my older siblings started spending more time with friends and my parents' marriage slowly unraveled. Sitting in the booths, it almost felt like things were normal again. We went back to the room and opened presents. My Ken doll, the ship's captain edition with the snappy hat and white gear, had melted partially. His face was misshapen, but he somehow retained his good looks. I decided that he'd been injured in a heinous accident and was returning to the dream house to propose to Barbie, his one true love on Christmas morning. I played for hours before taking a nap. When I woke up, Maurice was there, smiling and taking photos. My older siblings usually never spent this much time with us, but Kelly and Veronica played Barbies with me while Maurice and Michael helped my baby brother assemble his Hot Wheels track. In that Holiday Inn hotel room, which still carried the lingering smell of smoke, I thought about what the fire took from us, our home, and what it gave to us, our family back, just in time for Christmas. That was Angelica Lindsay Ali. Now, Barfly's co-curator, Katie Bravo, reaches for the top of the tree in a very yaya Christmas. Um, before I begin, I just have a quick announcement to make. There is a white BMW SUV with an American flag decal and a vanity license plate that reads Yaya. Uh, if you are the owner of this vehicle, it is about to be towed. Okay, that was just a precaution to make sure my grandmother wasn't in the room. Don't get me wrong, I love my yaya. Growing up, my yaya's house was like my second home. A beautiful white tri-level home that they built in Paradise Valley when I was three and still live in to this day. It was one of my favorite places to be, especially during the holidays, because yaya goes all out for Christmas. She decks the halls and then some with wreaths and ribbon and more Tuesday morning Christmas knickknacks than you could possibly imagine. She starts playing Christmas music 24-7 in November. She custom makes everyone's stocking with red velvet, gold jingle bells, and individually sequined patches of snowmen and Christmas trees and candy canes. 
She invites all the grandchildren over to bake cookies and set up her Charles Dickens village, which at this point is more of a Charles Dickens tri-county area, complete with ice skating rinks, Shakespearean theater, and a pink convertible for some reason. The whole process takes days. Then there's her annual Christmas Eve party, which features a 13-foot Christmas tree decorated entirely in Christopher Radko ornaments, uh, several rounds of white elephant bingo, and a professional Santa Claus who shows up and hands out toys to all the kids and poses for photos by the fireplace. As the firstborn grandchild, I inherited the role of putting the angel on top of that 13-foot Christmas tree. Every Christmas Eve, my grandmother would gingerly hand me the gold paper mache angel that my mother had made when she was five, and my grandfather would lift me up over his head, and I would put the angel very gently on top of the tree. There is just one problem with all of this. I am still doing it. Last year, I was 30 years old and four months pregnant, standing on top of a 10-foot ladder while my 73-year-old grandfather held me by the waist in a desperate attempt to keep me from falling. <laughs> Yaya's diehard commitment to holiday tradition is going to kill one of us. And yet, we've all remained pretty good sports about it. No one said a word when the hired Santa started showing up drunk to the Christmas Eve party and eating most of Yaya's sour cream pound cake. None of the men complained when that Santa, not too surprisingly, died, and they all had to take turns being his understudy. Everyone keeps playing with the same bingo cards, even though there are some obvious cheaters in the family, and Yaya has been missing B7, I-12, and O-64 for the last five years. And no one, no matter how tempted they might be, has ever purposely dropped one of those goddamn Dickens Village houses. But there is one event, one of Yaya's holiday traditions that I am so done with, and that is her annual grandmother-granddaughter Christmas brunch. It's been going on over 10 years now, and if you ask me, that's about 10 years too long. It happens the Sunday before Christmas at the Wrigley Mansion, and much like jury duty or catching HPV in your 20s, it is almost impossible to avoid. The mandatory guest list includes myself, my sisters, Jordan and Alyssa, our teenage cousins, Mia and Sophia, and most recently, Yaya's great-granddaughters, Alyssa's toddler, Evelyn, and my baby girl, Billy. Because Billy is only seven months old, she will not be expected to endure the entire three-hour ordeal that is grandmother, granddaughter, Christmas, brunch. Instead, she will get to leave with my husband right after the obligatory pre-brunch photo shoot. And honestly, I have never been so jealous of somebody who shits their own pants. 
That annual photo with her granddaughters is Yaya's pride and joy. So getting it just right can take anywhere from 10 minutes to a half hour. What with her adjusting our limbs, tilting our heads, fanning out our hair, fussing over our outfits. Not that there's anything wrong with our outfits. They were pre-approved by Yaya herself. <laughs> she assigns a color-coordinated dress code every year. And I gotta say, the end result looks something like a Norman Rockwell painting. If all of Norman Rockwell's subjects had the words, help me, written on their eyelids. <laughs> After the photos, we drop our things off at the table and we head to the buffet, either of which Yaya is going to take issue with. The table is too cramped, the dining room too loud, the food too cold, the dessert table lacking. They're all valid observations, and yet we keep going year after year to the Wrigley Mansion for the sake of tradition. We do a lot of things for the sake of tradition, like going around the table at Yaya's behest to list off our personal highlights of the year, which I know it doesn't sound that bad, but if you've had a particularly shit year, Talking about how wonderful the last 12 months have been can feel a bit like gaslighting. <laughs> Take the 2015 brunch, for example. That year, my now husband and I got engaged. Alyssa and her husband got pregnant. Our cousins Mia and Sophia went to Italy. And my sister Jordan got a DUI. <laughs> Fully aware of this, Yaya insisted on continuing the asinine tradition of yearly highlights and saved Jordan for last. <laughs> Jordan, not feeling particularly festive, but also not wanting to call Yaya out on her favorite day of the year, said the following. My highlight of the year? Well, let's see. I recently moved into a beautiful home in Paradise Valley. She lost her apartment and had to move back in with her parents. <laughs> I just started working at a prestigious golf course in Scottsdale. She lost her job and had to go work for our stepdad. I've decided to take a more active role in the environment, so I've stopped driving my car. She lost her driver's license. And I recently went camping, but I wouldn't recommend it. Tent City, she, she went to Tent City. Needless to say, as we get older, our patience with Yaya's festive formalities is getting thinner. Even the younger ones are starting to rebel. Last year, after my 14-year-old cousin Mia finished listing off her highlights of the past year, Yaya then prompted her to list off what she was looking forward to in the next year. Mia, who was about to head to the dessert table, sat back down in her chair. Uh, well, my friend Axel says he's gonna be able to fit a whole banana in his mouth by the end of the school year. We all laughed, <laughs> but Yaya was not amused. 
Well, Mia, that's Axel's goal. What are you looking forward to in the next year? Oh, I'm looking forward to seeing it. It would appear <laughs> that Yaya's many holiday traditions have no end in sight. I can see myself scaling that 13-foot Christmas tree well into middle age while my children watch in horror below. I can see her Charles Dickens Village acquiring a Starbucks, a co-working space, and an international airport. And I can see my husband becoming the first Latino Santa Claus at Yaya's Christmas Eve party. I can see it all happening, but it's not going to. Last month at Thanksgiving, my grandparents announced that they were selling the house. And this would be their last year hosting the holidays. It's time for one of you to take the torch, my grandpa said. After that, I went home and cried. Not the usual crying that comes from spending an unhealthy amount of time with your extended family. <laughs> or drinking too much wine, both of which I'm very good at. Um, but the kind of crying that comes from realizing that the people and the places that you just assumed would be around forever, like everything else, they eventually end. I guess this is all to say that I have spent an embarrassing amount of time over the last few weeks looking at stupidly priced holiday outfits for me and my daughter, because this Sunday, will be her first grandmother, granddaughter, Christmas brunch. And I want that photo to be perfect. Katie Bravo. You'll never think of a grocery store in quite the same way after Jason P. Woodbury shares Russell to the front. The day after Thanksgiving, the store owner would change the satellite radio station from the familiar 50s and 60s broadcast with its even blend of doo-wop standards, inoffensive 60s rock and crooners to the Christmas station. So that's what we would listen to for a month. Loops of Jingle Bell Rock, Santa Baby, Do They Know It's Christmas? as we schlepped boxes of lard and bags of masa onto the shelves, stocked the dairy case with eggnog, and built towering monuments from cartons of Swiss Miss. Most any Christmas song is fine enough to hear once, maybe twice, but that unceasing mega-mix, treacly and buzzing overhead, seemed to infect every corner of the grocery store. It was oppressive. Nowadays, people tell me they hate Christmas music, and I assume they're adopting a fashionable anti-cheer pose. But no, when I give them the benefit of the doubt, I know what they mean, thinking about how I'd hide in the walk-in cooler with the milk and ice cream, seeking the industrial hum of the fan as a means to drown out another go-round of Frosty the Snowman, <laughs> knowing he'd be back again one day, later that day even, <laughs> I wasn't an especially morose 17-year-old, no matter how the jewel cases out in my mercury tracer suggested otherwise. But music wasn't just something that was on for me, not then and not ever. 
So I probably paid too much attention to the overhead radio at my grocery store job, which came in handy on the occasions that the owner, the former mayor of our small Arizona cotton town, would come by and grill me on pop trivia. He was an upright conservative fella, always on me to cut my damn hair. But he had a thing for Leonard Cohen, so I learned a lot from him. There were no folk, walk, folk rock quizzes when we switched to holiday classics, though. Just gnawing nods. We'd get through it, we seemed to say to each other telepathically. The store was normally busy, but Christmas was another story altogether. And when things got frenzied enough, I didn't even notice the music. Pulling cartons of ligots out of the locked case for the ranchers, I said, soft pack, not hard pack, kid. Rushing back to the cereal aisle to grab the right box of kicks for the moms with wick cards. Quick cleanups over by the yogurt, a jaunt into the butcher shop to ask if any more ham hocks were on the way out. Not only did the rush make the day go by faster and drown out the silver bells, but it made me feel useful, part of a community, an actual assistance to the weird, dusty people in my weird, dusty town. I'd walk old ladies out to their station wagons and carefully load their brown paper sacks with leafy greens and rolls into their ride, and I took self-righteous pleasure in refusing their tips, waving my hand to signal to them the no-goodness of their crumpled ones and occasional fives. It wasn't just that I wasn't allowed to accept tips. A couple of my pals did, knowing they'd catch hell if a manager spotted them, but risking it anyway. No, I honestly took satisfaction in being helpful. So that's how I worked in those days, with a glad heart, except for the days that I didn't. Like when my best friend Jacob and I would make a game of avoiding the manager and an extended show out of loading up the soda machine with generic cola and lemon lime, dropping a can straight into the air, tracing the distance of carbonated fizz that would jet from it as it hit the asphalt with an electrifying crack. One night, we were tasked with disposing of dead fluorescent lights, and we took turns smashing them against the dumpster, coming back in with chalky glass dust all over our jeans and converse. We worked hard most of the time, and we figured that justified screwing around a lot of the other times. That year, the Christmas party was held on a Sunday. Jacob and I were scheduled for an opening shift with just enough time to head home after work and get changed before the party at the owner's house later that evening. The last hours that day, as the sun poured afternoon light through the store windows, dragged forever. So Jake and I decided to hide out in the soda aisle where we had a killer view of the front of the store through a wire display holding boxes of Canada Dry and Hawaiian Punch, where we could spot any manager before they spotted us slacking. I saw Mommy kissing Santa Claus ringing overhead. We talked about a trip to the valley to make our usual rounds. Zia to see what was good on the listening stations, Bookman's for cheap used vinyl, and The Warehouse to scour for CDs we'd read reviews of in the latest issue of Alternative Press. We were killing time beautifully when the call came over the overhead paging system, Russell to the front. See, Russell to the front was a code. It meant all able-bodied young men to the interest. Someone was about to make a run for it. People were always shoplifting, and while we weren't encouraged to get physical with people ripping us off, we weren't not encouraged to do so either. With our surplus of teenage energy and boredom, we made our way to the front, right as a young guy made a dash out the door, a clerk shouting out after him. Ray, my second favorite manager and a lifer in the grocery biz, pushed out the swinging door after the guy, 
Jason and I close behind in hot pursuit. To my surprise, the runner didn't bolt across the parking lot to a waiting vehicle or towards the busy street, but instead he turned the corner past the ice and soda machines and headed towards the back of the store. We were gaining on him as he passed the dumpster and vaulted, I mean straight up bounded, over the stucco wall that separated the loading dock from the neighborhood behind the store. Damn, Ray wheezed, trailing, but Jake and I, we hit the middle of the wall and we climbed over. Come on, man, I shouted as we gained on him, his pace slowing as he moved down the alley. Breathing heavily, he stopped. He turned to face us as we tried in vain to pump the brakes, sneakers skidding in the dust. He didn't say anything as our eyes met. He was my age, maybe a couple years older, a Latino kid, his face smooth save for a wispy mustache. Breathing hard, he raised his hands in the air and a fat pack of ribs slipped from underneath his hoodie, falling into the alleyway dirt. We stood there for half a second, Jake and I uncertain what was exactly supposed to happen next. We heard Ray calling behind us. Jake leaned down and picked up the meat. I kept the kid's gaze, kind of stunned, until he turned and bolted away. He was gone by the time Ray caught up to us, Jake cradling the ribs against his red polo uniform shirt. Hell, he exclaimed at the recovered spare ribs. We started back for the store. A few hours later, at the Christmas party, Ray regaled the gathered crowd with the story of me and Jake, acting like a couple of junkyard dogs. Jerry, the produce guy and a real macho asshole, came by and pounded me on the back. I think the butchers might have actually clapped for us. Proud of you boys, the store owner said, encouraging us to get in line for pasoli and enchiladas. But I couldn't shape a nagging feeling as the night went on. I kept thinking about the look on that guy's face, about how he let the ribs drop, dejected, and how, upon getting them back to the store, Ray told us it wouldn't be legal to sell the meat now. You don't steal meat to turn profit, I thought to myself. That's not why you risk it. You dash in and you make a run in the hopes that maybe you'll be able to bring something delicious home, something indulgent. But stealing's wrong, I told myself as my heroic delusions faded. Sure, but somehow my part in the story was more wrong. Those ribs wrapped in cellophane over yellow styrofoam, they were probably in a trash can back at the store. And they could have been feeding people at a Sunday night barbecue, just like ours. People gathered to try and share a night under twinkling lights. Someone turned up a radio, and more Yuletide music droned on. People laughed, passed plates of food, and danced a little. I smiled and tried to get back to the party, my mind drifting. But I knew one thing. I'd had my fill of Christmas songs for the season. That was Jason P. Woodbury. I've got a story in this episode of the Barflies podcast about family recipes and the traditions we make for ourselves. Here's There's No Such Thing as a Christmas Brisket. So here's the thing no one really ever tells you about Christmas. It gets harder as you get older. This occurred to me last week when my daughter Sophie ran sobbing to her room at the news that we were going to purchase a Christmas tree that evening. She's terrified that Santa Claus is going to come into her bedroom. 
Whoever came up with, he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, is an asshole. <laughs> I looked it up. His name was Haven Gillespie, and he wrote the lyrics to the 1934 smash hit, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Gillespie died in 1975. According to Wikipedia, he drank heavily for most of his life, something I plan to do at least until New Year's. <laughs> Christmas is hard. I am old. Sophie's old, too, for a Santa believer, anyway. She's 15 and a half. Sophie has Down syndrome, so it takes her longer to figure some things out. Santa is one of those things. In between bouts of terror, she loves to believe. She writes Santa letters asking about Mrs. Claus, asking how their Thanksgiving was, how their Hanukkah was, asking if Santa knows that she has Down syndrome. This year, she removed bras from her Christmas wish list. That's not appropriate to ask Santa for, she told me solemnly. She checks several times a day to see if the response to her letter has arrived. I realize I'm a shitty parent for not having clued her in, but really, which one of you wants to be the one to break the news to Sophie? Anyone? That's what I thought. My wise friend Jennifer has it right. Christmas is really at its peak when you're three or four years old, she told me. The rest is downhill. I think that's true for most people. Me, I peaked late. Growing up Jewish, I never got the chance to believe in Santa. My sister and I got blue and white stockings with a pack of carefree gum in the toe. There was nothing magical about it. Don't feel sorry for me, I was hardly deprived, but I always longed for the opportunity to really celebrate Christmas. I finally got my chance at 27 when I started dating my now husband, Ray. Ray's family was not religious. His mother put the kids in Catholic school when they were little, but it didn't stick, probably because Ray's father is a devout atheist. But I think that man loved Christmas more than anyone. Every year on Christmas Day, he pulled out this faded old velvet smoking jacket and put it on over his undershirt and wore it all day. Ray's family never left the house on Christmas. Everything was beautifully orchestrated, carefully planned over weeks, maybe months, down to the bowl of red and green M&Ms on the plastic poinsettia tablecloth in the modest Tempe tract home the family purchased in the 1970s, shortly after moving here from Queens. Ray's father had retired early from the New York City Fire Department. He loved being a fireman, but the smoke inhalation got him. Ray's mom found a job doing data entry at the Mesa Police Department. They took Ray and his sister on long summer road trips to national parks till the kids were too old. So far, no one had gotten too old for Christmas. I immediately accepted an invitation to that first Christmas at Ray's house, and I never looked back. His mom puffy painted my name on a felt stocking that she hung next to the one she'd needle pointed for Ray when he was a baby. Each year I brought her an ornament for the tree, which she would carefully store with the rest and proudly hang the following Christmas. We'd arrive early on Christmas morning, sit down to coffee and homemade Irish soda bread, one loaf with raisins, the other without, 
because Ray hates raisins in his Irish soda bread, and enjoy the spectacle of the lit tree and the stacks of gifts, then take turns opening until there was a giant pile of tissue and boxes, just like in the movies. Ray, his sister, and I would watch TV and nap while their parents bustled for hours in the small kitchen. Ray's dad always made mashed potatoes from scratch, and together they roasted a turkey, microwaved vegetables, and prepared an elaborate family recipe for stuffing that involves boiling sausage and mixing it with loaves of Wonder Bread that have been left out for days. Ray's mom would swap the plastic tablecloth for a real one and put out her good dishes. She made the whole thing look effortless. Every year I would ask her, how do you do it? How do you make it so every dish is ready at the same time? Practice, she would tell me, hiding a proud smile. Years of practice. Then she'd slip into the kitchen to make hot tea, serving it with the cookies I'd baked and mentioning that she was hiding one of my pink iced stars to have the next morning with her coffee. As we scooped up piles of gifts to take home, Ray's dad would sigh, dejected. He hated it when Christmas was over, he'd tell us. I totally related. Ray and I got engaged, then married, then we had a baby, then another baby. His mom added stockings by the fireplace and the mounds of tissue paper grew. But really, nothing about Christmas ever changed, which is exactly the way I liked it. And then everything changed. Just after the holidays one year, mom, Ray's mom began complaining that her throat hurt. She never complained. By spring, the diagnosis was lung cancer. We celebrated one last Christmas in 2008, and by the next February, she was gone. I wasn't completely surprised when the following summer, Christmas arrived on our doorstep in the form of several Rubbermaid bins. Ray's dad had left nothing out. He included the stockings, the hooked rug tree skirt, every ornament. Suddenly, Ray and I were the adults. Over the years, we've developed some pretty good holiday traditions. Every Christmas Eve, we take our daughters out to look at lights. We get home late and the girls go to sleep and Ray and I stay up and drink Baileys and wrap gifts, shooing poor Sophie away every time she emerges, worried about Santa watching her sleep. <laughs> Christmas morning, I serve homemade Irish soda bread, one loaf with raisins, one without, and I always put out a bowl of red and green M&Ms. It's all good until it's time to make Christmas dinner. Now we have to have poultry, because that's what goes best with the centerpiece of the meal, the stuffing. That family recipe that involves the aging of white bread and the use of pretty much every utensil in the kitchen. It's become tradition that Ray makes the stuffing, and he attacks the task with equal parts precision and abandon, which means that he's inconsolable if the bread isn't quite stale enough and also that the kitchen walls wind up covered in onion. Things aren't as pretty on my side of the kitchen. The first Christmas dinner we hosted, I made a traditional turkey, and we didn't eat until it was past everyone's bedtime. The next year, I made a turkey breast, which dried up like jerky and tasted like sawdust. Cornish game hens were a big pain in the ass and a little creepy. And the spatchcock turkey wouldn't stay in the largest roasting pan I could find. 
parts kept popping out of the pan. That turkey looked like a naked lady with her legs splayed. <laughs> I'm not much better at sides. <laughs> never attempted mashed potatoes, but Ray's stuffing is always delicious, a point of pride. My father-in-law hasn't tried it in years. A couple Christmases after my mother-in-law died, Ray's dad stopped coming over. He's got a girlfriend now, and they always schedule a trip over the holidays. I wish Ray's dad would partake in our new traditions, if only for his granddaughters. I want to be mad at him. And then I picture my father-in-law in his velvet smoking jacket standing in the doorway as we drive away, sad because Christmas is over. Last year, I decided that it doesn't really matter what I cook for Christmas dinner. So I made my grandmother's Jewish brisket, the only main dish I can prepare with any degree of certainty of success. Everyone raved, but the truth was that it was a little gross, meaty and greasy next to the sausage stuffing. It didn't feel right. It wasn't Christmassy. The truth is, I wasn't Christmassy. I'm just an imposter, I thought. What's the point? There's no such thing as Christmas brisket. What if we order in Chinese this year, I asked Ray last month. You know, ditch Christmas dinner and make things a little easier on ourselves. Okay, he said, that sounds good. But I'll still make the sausage stuffing, right? And can you get some of those Cornish game hens? <laughs> Despite Sophie's protests, Ray went out and bought a tree, and at some point, the four of us will honor another tradition and decorate it. I'll open the boxes with my mother-in-law's ornaments, delicate glass balls, the popsicle figures Ray made in grade school, the snapshot of his family dog sitting on Santa's lap, and several tiny framed pictures of our girls. My favorite ornament is a Santa carved from wood, painted in bright colors and shaped like a star. On the side, in my mother-in-law's handwriting, it says, Amy, 1995. Tonight, I'll stop at the grocery store on my way home and buy the Wonder Bread. So there's plenty of time for it to get good and stale before Christmas. <laughs> and I'll see if the butcher has Cornish game hens. I might even try to make mashed potatoes. We can order Chinese another night. That was me, Amy Silverman. Now, Jennifer Longdon tries long distance cooking by text message in Sweet Potatoes Two Ways. It's 2 a.m. on Thanksgiving of 2014. I'm wrapped in my down comforter, snuggling a big snoring dog, probably snoring a little bit myself, when I was awakened by a text message filled with exclamation points and emojis. 911-911, I'm not bringing the rolls for Christmas. <laughs> then in all caps, I've been assigned the sweet potatoes. What am I going to do? I had no idea who it was from. 
Now, I'd heard of families this organized that assigned shared dishes a whole month early so they could be planned. In my own family, you might get several green bean casseroles and no potatoes at all for the holiday meal. <laughs> this family, whoever they were, had it going on. I was a bit jealous. I typed wrong number, but paused and deleted it. Then I texted on a lark, I think you have the wrong number. This is Jennifer, but I have a ton of great sweet potato recipes. I'll send you one if you want. You can do this. I waited, got nothing, so I went back to sleep. Hours later, I was enjoying breakfast of leftover pecan pie and coffee surrounded by the silence of my little house. My own Thanksgiving dinner, for one, had been a bit bleak, but it was tasty. Rather than a huge turkey meal with all of the trimmings, I'd indulged in a nice steak, sauteed onions and mushrooms, a lovely bottle of wine. My pie came from a box in the freezer. While I imagined my texter had spent the evening surrounded by family, I finished not one but two intricate pages in my adult coloring book. <laughs> my cell phone dinged in a flurry of texts. I don't really cook. Oh God, this is awful. Frowny face emoji. <laughs> I finished my pie and coffee. Okay, let's start at the beginning, I responded. I'm Jennifer. I live in Phoenix, and I do really cook. What's your name? I learned that Sarah was 23, lived in Branson, Missouri, worked as a scheduler for the local cable company. She'd meant to text a cousin and somehow got me instead. Dinner's at my sister's house. She knows I don't cook. There was a long pause. Bitch. God, I love other people's family dynamics. <laughs> okay, Sarah from Branson, let's show your sister what you can do, shall we? <laughs> Nothing. I figure Sarah's gone away. So it's now 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Would you really help me, she texted? Sweet or savory? What? What's on the menu? Do you want a recipe that's sweet, like with the marshmallows and stuff? Or do you prefer a savory recipe? She wrote back, I don't know what savory is. <laughs> oh God, Sarah cannot cook. <laughs> savory means it's not sweet. It's salty or spiced, just not sweet. You can make them both ways. Like two dishes, she asked. She seemed a little unconvinced. I don't know, that would be hard. Now, I have some unresolved sibling rivalry issues, perhaps. I'm really feeling for Sarah. Well, you could do one or the other, but if you really want to show your sister, <laughs> two simple dishes would do it. They're both easy. I thought for a second and followed with, super easy. Now, I... I typed in all caps to emphasize that this would indeed be super easy. Personally, I was having a little bit of a crisis. What if I led poor Sarah astray? Could this person really learn to cook by text message? 
I pulled out my recipe books and started pouring through them. I even Googled sweet potatoes. <laughs> Evening fell, and I took the second half of my Thanksgiving bottle of wine outside to watch the sunset when Sarah sent a volley of texts. Do you mean it? It's easy? I really can't cook. I sip my Merlot and watch the sky change and wonder about Sarah. I created an image of this Midwest girl, probably a bit of a rebel, now sweating the intrigue of the family holiday dinner. I texted back, everyone can cook, you just haven't learned how. I mean it, super easy. Why would you help me, she asked. Now that's a legit question. Why was I getting involved with some girl halfway across the country? Why should I care? She's got the Google. She can do this as easily as I can. <laughs> I was lonely. I was bored. I was disconnected. I'd struggled with the holidays for years following my spinal cord injury, choosing to spend them alone in my self-imposed solitude. But my Grinch-sized heart needed to have a reason to keep beating. Sarah was going to get me through. So over the next weeks, all by text, I taught her to infuse olive oil with garlic and rosemary and then brush it over par-baked sweet potato spears, generously add fresh cracked pepper and kosher salt, and roast them to perfection. She undercooked the first batch, then overcooked the next, but by the third try, she had it down. It would have been easier to talk, I suppose. Neither of us ever dialed the other. I feared it might somehow mess with our mojo. One text at a time we got through. We made our shopping list. We strategized on what to do uh, the day before and what to finish at her sister's place on Christmas Day. We talked about how to present her dish at the table. I knew the savory sweet potatoes would be unique and they'd score big points with that plate. Now the minefield of the holiday meal is the sweet potato casserole. Every cook has their own recipe. Sarah, tell me about your favorite bite of sweet potatoes, I asked one day in mid-December. I don't really like sweet potatoes, she answered. <laughs> Maybe you could have shared that before this. It's hard to make a dish you don't like and do it well. She texted back, it's okay, I hate the soupy green bean thing even more. We all do, Sarah. So, the sweet potatoes, do you want them in chunky bites or whipped like mashed potatoes? We went back and forth, maple syrup or brown sugar, walnuts, pineapple, marshmallows. In the end, she decided on whipped sweet potatoes smothered in butter, bourbon, vanilla, and brown sugar with a secret ingredient. She was excited by the secret ingredient. We practiced the recipe in a small quantity and her coworkers loved it. I'm so sick of sweet potatoes, Sarah texted one day. I hear you, girl, this has become an obsession for both of us. 
My sister's not going to know what hit her, she gloated. Oh, sisterly love. I texted back, at a girl. I sat in my undecorated home, counting the days until the holidays were over. Sarah's upcoming Christmas dinner was the only one that mattered to me. I felt no personal connection to the spirit of the season. Every text from her was a little bit of holiday cheer. As we finished Sarah's preparations for her Midwest Christmas, I planned my own holiday dinner, homemade pumpkin curry soup, a small game hen with dressing, Brussels sprouts, mashed potatoes, and sweet potatoes two ways. On Christmas Day, I threw open the doors, put on the Yule Log YouTube video, cranked Ella Fitzgerald as I cooked. I hummed along contentedly as I stirred and basted. I roasted my savory sweet potatoes to perfection. Then I stirred a generous pinch of flax fresh black pepper into my sweet potato casserole before I covered it in marshmallows and set it in the oven to brown. Sarah had been alarmed when I told her about the pepper. They'll be ruined. It'll taste horrible, she worried. I assured her that the sharp note of pepper would cut the sweet just enough to give it balance and definition. Oh my God, I'm a friggin' gourmet, she crowed. As I settled in for my Christmas dinner, I checked my phone. Nothing from Sarah. I washed up after dinner, enjoying wine and sunset on the patio and headed to bed early. Around midnight, my phone dinged. They loved the sweet potatoes. I think you're my Christmas angel, she texted. Then a string of holiday emojis. My sister asked for the recipes. I never heard from Sarah again. I dropped my phone and cracked it shortly after that and lost all my old text messages when I got my replacement phone. And while I remember Sarah with fondness, I love that our friendship was random and ephemeral. I treasure how her confidence grew that month that we cooked together. I wonder what she's cooking this year. Maybe she's graduated to host. I hope she always remembers that it's the sharp note that balances the sweet and makes it sweeter. Jennifer Longden. Lori Nataro takes on the political scene and all that entails when family enters the picture in I Love My Enemy. Behind the wheel of my father's Lexus, I park and get out of the car with my makeshift kit in hand. I rip off a slice of scotch tape, then another, and securely attach them to the either side of the Hillary Clinton bumper sticker, placing it on the bumper of my father's car directly over his Trump bumper sticker. <laughs> I'm a rotten daughter. The day before I went to a friend's house, driving the car my dad had lent me for my visit, the Trump sticker unaltered. When I arrived, my friend asked if I could, I'm sorry. When I arrived, my friend happened to be outside when I pulled up. He greeted me warmly and then politely asked me if I could move the car. I asked if I was blocking the driveway. I have a husband who I waited 30 years to marry, he reminded me. You can't park that thing outside of my house. I would get voted out of gay at the next meeting. <laughs> and he was right. 
In my social circle, that's the equivalent of pulling up in a panzer and trying to requisition the crap in bungalows on either side of the street to fill them with satellite offices of Breitbart and several Trump Airbnbs. <laughs> you won't believe this, but I didn't know my parents were Republicans until I was well into my 30s. It was the election of 2000, and the Gore slash Lieberman yard sign was firmly planted in my yard when my parents came to my house for a family dinner. My mother looked at it and said, who hates you that much to put that thing in your yard? <laughs> when I told her that I got it for phone banking, she wasn't relieved or proud. Jesus Christ, that's even worse, she exclaimed. I'm sending you the bill for your wedding now that I know I paid for all of your gore friends to get drunk and have sex in the bathrooms. <laughs> we lived, I realize now, in a staunchly conservative household, and although we always knew who the president was, we never spoke about anything more politically oriented than that at the dinner table. Maybe my parents weren't telling us that Nixon was a crook over chicken cutlets because maybe they didn't think that he was. But then I tried to tell myself there were indications that my parents could have leaned the other way. They tried to adopt a Vietnamese orphan in 1974, but as my mother says, they were like Cabbage Patch dolls. <laughs> By the time we got to the front of the line, the government ran out of them. <laughs> and that is so true. <laughs> he was going to have to share my bedroom. I was not thrilled. So I was a little relieved. My mother gave my father a perm in 1976, after which he bought a see-through shirt with a lady's face on it and referred to himself as modern. As I grew older, my parents were accepting of my gay friends and my gay boyfriends, and to prove how my misdirection, I had two boyfriends that dated each other, it was awesome, didn't affect my self-esteem at all. And to prove how my misdirection was truly not misdirected, I distinctly remember my parents had the soundtrack to Hair and Midnight Cowboy, but the giveaway was that their Beatles collection stopped at Rubber Soul. That's a really good joke. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> my parents are basically second-generation Italian-Americans, born of carpenters, seamstresses, and grocers. They struggled financially for most of their lives. My father joined the army at age 17 and learned the skills to get a job as a civil engineer after his service. He worked like a madman and became his own brand before there were brands. My father is a self-made man with a work ethic that is typically only programmed into robots. My mother raised three daughters who arrived in quick succession, like most women who turned 20 in the 1960s. She made our clothes, cooked our dinners, washed the kitchen floor every other day, and stretched that weekly budget to make it appear that things were much easier than they were. Neither of my parents is a slouch. They earn their lives. Their eventual house in Scottsdale, the Lexus, the player grand piano that sprawls across their living room and plays a theme to Dr. Zhivago on command like an obedient ghost. We've had to spend Thanksgivings while that thing fucking played. <laughs> it's like a ghost saloon. It's like, who's playing that? Da 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 da. And it also does the theme of The Godfather, which is awesome. Okay. <laughs> they weren't handed any of it, but I was. I was handed my first car, my college education, my second car, my nice little Italian American wedding, my third car. I had bootstraps, sure. My parents had just already pulled them up for me. I believe that Anne Frank made me a Democrat. I was probably 11 or 12 when I read her diary. It had been on my bookshelf for months. 
What I can say is that I was a dramatic child, surprise. Nothing hit me halfway. It was all, all or nothing. And if I was going to read Anne Frank, I was going to be Anne Frank, including going as Anne Frank for Halloween. And it's easy, it's easy. All you need is a dress, tiny little white socks, and a notebook. Bingo, you're Anne Frank. <laughs> it's a very literary outfit. And for a 12-year-old, it's very sophisticated, I believe. After reading the book, I did believe that people had good in them and that every person had the potential to change the world. And there you have it. In 164 pages, I was a bleeding heart liberal. But my parents' theories of how I became a Democrat differ. It was meeting your husband, my mother said, remembering that he had long hair. <laughs> he wasn't even registered to vote when I met him, I informed her, although he did eventually register and then went on to work for the ACLU, which we told my mother was a sports team. After the 2000 election, our family didn't suffer much. I was uninvited to an uncle's Memorial Day barbecue after he heard me call President George W. a dipshit. Then off the Christmas card list when I did it again, and for Italian-Americans, that really means that you're more than dead. It means that even if they've been fraudulently sucking off disability for half a century, you're the one that hates our country and is a waste of citizenship. The Obama years were relatively quiet with the exception of one Christmas Eve, and there's my hook for this show. One Christmas Eve dinner, a kerfuffle erupted when an in-law arrived already wine happy and showing off his new man purse. I'm not sure if this skirmish would have happened before or without those elements, but 15 minutes after chewing began, dinner was fractured when someone, and I won't say who, made a derogatory teabagger comment, and someone else, and I won't say who, responded, and within seconds, the phrase, yeah, well, Jill Biden is a whore exploded over the dinner table and the women rushed the children out of the room. Someone with a man purse and a line of sweat beads over his upper lip was heading for the front door with car keys in his hand when we returned. I have since moved to another bluer state, Oregon, yay, which must have been akin to telling my parents that I met a bearded man named Charlie and was going to go and live on a ranch with him and his friends. That's a Charles Manson joke. I have a Squeaky Frome joke, too, but I'm aging out of that joke. No one knows who Squeaky Frome is. Gerald Ford, Gerald Ford, floppy hat. I love Squeaky Frome. Not really, but she's a great punchline. Anyway, okay. But for the holidays, we come home back to a red place, nearly purple. And no tomatoes so far, you guys. This is awesome. Okay, back to a red place where Fox News is on downstairs and Fox News is on upstairs in the home of my parents where I stay. I tried to combat the noise by blasting Judy Woodruff on the small black and white TV in the guest bedroom, but the joke was on me the next time I went to visit and the TV was gone. <laughs> it broke, my mother said simply and shrugged when I asked her where it was. Maybe it killed itself. It was looking pretty blue which is just as well. There's only a handful of times that you can bear hearing the words shithole countries pass Woodruff's lips and still be able to stumble out into the red world each day with your eyes open. I love my parents, but I am philosophically opposed to almost everything they support. To deal with any of this, we deal with none of it. We talk about it as much as we would converse about a sex scandal involving one of us. 
Our conversations are static and careful, as if we're moving around the parameters of a room that has a large bulb of hot, spinning lava in the middle that we cannot touch or we will bear the consequences. I want to talk about Trump calling John McCain, our John McCain, our Arizona senator, who even I have voted for and whose yard sign for the 2008 election was still hanging in my father's garage. Trump called him a coward for being captured in Vietnam. I wanted my parents to be outraged, horrified, shocked into speechlessness, but they weren't. He hasn't been a member of the party for some time now, my parents both said, nodding in agreement with one another. When I came home this past Sunday, I looked as we pulled into the garage, and the McCain sign was gone. I want to talk about the Kavanaugh hearings. I want to remind my parents that they have three daughters, and that every single one of us has been sexually harassed at work, more than once, more than twice. But I don't dare. Women are doing great, they opine. They can be more than secretaries now. My dad said that. It's awesome. I didn't talk to my mother for two weeks after the Kavanaugh confirmation, feigning work schedules and making excuses about uncharged phones. During the campaign, my mother dismissed the, I can't even say the word, P star SS grabbing comments um, by declaring that her friend's granddaughter, who was Miss Arizona in the Miss USA pageant, had met Trump during the pageant and said he was very nice. But last Christmas, I unleashed a secret weapon. We know him as my husband. Now, a university professor in the humanities, my mother loves my husband way more than me. She thinks he looks a lot like Brad Pitt. He doesn't. And they both... <laughs> He's cute, but he and Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt. And they both agree about all of my faults. Recently diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, he's supposed to avoid all stress at all times. One morning, at, one morning last Christmas, as my mother was flipping through the channel to Fox while we were visiting, <clears throat> I was hit with a stroke of brilliance. Mom, I whispered, the doctor says he can't get stressed. Please change the channel. <laughs> Without a word, she picked up the remote and clicked over to Home Shopping Network. I was looking for some new pants anyway, she said, and for the rest of our stay, we listened to women sell fake jewelry, jeggings, and scalp makeup to cover the bald spots over our morning coffee. It was awesome, and it was love. It was my mother who gave me the diary of Anne Frank. As she handed the book over, she said, I saw this in the bookstore today. This little girl likes to stay in her room a lot, just like you. Of course, I can never tell her this. I can never let her know that it was her doing that canceled out her own vote in every election when I lived in Arizona. <laughs> Someday, maybe, we can talk about our differences, finding out that perhaps we aren't as far apart as we thought, or that the gap is so wide that it's impossible for us to even attempt to bridge. Maybe we will never be as brave to give it a shot. I don't know. What I'm fairly sure of is that if tensions rise, become more intense, and, to more, and more people start threatening civil war, madness, <laughs> as some has began to, and I'm trapped in a red zone at Christmas time, and Jill Biden's reputation is something worth bearing arms for, I'm pretty sure my parents would let me hide in their attic. I know that I have room for them in mine. Lori Nataro. 
Apparently the phrase Christmas tree needs to be a trigger warning for some members of Kathy Kano Murillo's family. Here she is with Tangled Tinsel. I'm not picky. I'll take anything. Anything, please, can we just have a bit of Christmas magic? That sums up my thoughts for the holiday season of 2002. Between skimpy finances, long work hours, parenting, fulfilling art and craft orders, all of it took a toll on my emotional bandwidth. No matter what, I vowed to give my kids a memorable Christmas that year. One day, my wish for holiday enchantment arrived. My mother-in-law showed up with a dozen, dozen of her steamy homemade tamales and an artificial Christmas tree, brand new, still taped up in the box. We hadn't told her, but she knew that our family needed this. My daughter Maya, in the fifth grade at the time, shot up her skinny arm to volunteer as head decorator and took 100% ownership. I didn't argue, I had other issues to tend with. The source of our family angst, D'Angelo's seventh grade math. My son and his entire semester had been a storm of stress, slaving over complicated homework problems, parent-teacher conferences that left me with PTSD. D'Angelo's world, like most seventh graders, revolved around Halo and Super Smash Brothers. Earlier that fall season, he agreed to join an after-school math program as long as I would chill from the constant nagging, bribing, threatening, and just trusted him to complete his assignments on his own. Every day, he came home and excitedly assured me he turned in all his work. He absolutely needed to pass this class to make it to eighth grade. On the outside, I cheered him on, but inside, I prayed myself into a headache for him to please be telling me the truth. <laughs> December rolled around. Between D'Angelo's new sense of confidence, Maya's youthful efficiency, life was sweeter than a pumpkin empanada. Then, Miss Queen Maya cleared her schedule to tend to the tree. We all stepped out of her way. She sorted every holiday decoration according to size and color and displayed them on the couch. She didn't want our help. She spent two hours choosing and then auditioning each ornament on one pristine plastic branch after another. As a lasting touch, she trimmed it from top to bottom with many twinkling lights and red velvet ribbon bows. She finished and we stood back and admired her hard work. A hug, a pat on the back, and then I sent her out to grab the mail while I cleaned up the empty ornament boxes. Finally, a moment of peace. Everything was coming together. She returned and dropped the stack on the counter. From the corner of my eye, I see the logo from D'Angelo's school on the top letter. Hmm, I hummed curiously. Oh, who am I kidding? Before I even ripped open the flap, I knew I'd been played. I inhaled and read. Hi, Mrs. Murillo, happy holidays. We have a smidge of bummer news. It appears your beloved son, D'Angelo, hasn't quite kept up with his math homework. His future grade is grim, but we know you're going to have a lot of drama in your house tonight, so here's a gift card for a free glass of wine at Applebee's. And, by the way, never forget that you are an awesome mom.
well, that's the version I would have relayed if I were in charge at that school. No, the real letter went like this. D'Angelo Murillo will be receiving a failing grade in the following courses, math, all caps. Next to that, a little box checked with the reason. Failure to turn in assignments, poor test grades. It only took a few moments for me to click into the early stages of Hulk mode. Flashes of green, the fast, heavy breathing, the shaking of my head in disbelief. I stared up at the invisible movie screen in the sky and played out our math conversations from the past few months. I tried to connect the dots, and like my dad always said, if something is too good to be true, it probably is. The lies, the false hope from this little boy whom I loved so much, all of it suffocated my rational thinking, and there was no brown paper bag to breathe into. I didn't even have a chance to process my anger when guess who strolls through the front door? Hey, Mom, how's, how's it going? The tree looks great, D'Angelo quipped, nodding towards Maya's festive work. Hi, I replied sharply, one eyebrow shooting up. So, how is math going? He stuttered. Um, fine? Not fine! I screamed. I stomped and I lunged towards him, waving the crumpled correspondence over my head. Look at this letter that came from your school. You're failing math. You've been lying to me this whole time. Why? I don't know. <laughs> he dropped the book bag and slumped his shoulders. No matter what I asked, I don't know. So I grabbed his bag and inspected the, the blank homework pages, one after another. My heart beat faster. Do you want to flunk out of school and, and, and go work in the fields? In the fields? He said, well, I just seen La Bamba earlier that week. You know how Richie Valens' family, they started off at farm workers at the beginning of the movie? I think that's where that visual came from. But anyway, I went with it. Uh, I don't know, he said. So then I tried guilt. Does it make you feel good to hurt my feelings? I don't know. In the meantime, Patrick and Maya stood on the sidelines and watched our conversation like a tennis ball going back and forth. Then there's an innocent decorated tree observing the whole thing too. I glanced at it and it's looking at me like, oh fun, leave it to me to get stuck with the drama family. That was just enough for me to capture that energy and I told D'Angelo, if you say I don't know one more time, I'm, I'm gonna pick up that tree and I'm gonna throw it across the family room. And he kind of chuckled a little bit. And then he didn't make a peep. He didn't even look up from the floor. I could have sworn I saw that tree inch backwards a little bit away from me. So then I lowered my voice calmly. Why didn't you do your homework? All I needed was a simple, because I hate math. Or, I'm sorry, didn't he know the stress I'd been under that holiday season? I chewed on my lip to see which of the above that he would accept and say to me. I would accept it with love and compassion and we would work through it. We met eye to eye. And he stuttered, I, um, I, don't say it, D'Angelo. Please, baby boy, I'm warning you, don't say it. I don't know what's going to happen. Don't say it. I... I don't know. Oh, the rest was slow-mo. Mom Beast unleashed. 
My head tilted back, and I growled. With one giant step, I reached both hands over to that brand new tree, decorated or not, sorry, Maya. I put it in a chokehold, raised it over my head. I don't know where I got this strength, and threw it across the family room. Okay, calm down, it was an artificial tree. It's like, it was really lightweight, actually, but a really good visual impact for the family. <laughs> silence, complete silence, except for the few bulbs that shattered against the wall. Patrick and the kids stood there, speechless and in shock. This is what happens, gangster mom, when you push her over the edge during the holiday season, the tree rested limply against the wall, bent branches, ornaments dangling by a thread, tangled garland, just like the sugar plum holiday dreams of my children. That's how it stayed the rest of the season. I think we did cover it with a sheet. Every time I passed it, I felt the walk of shame. That $50 stinking tree had the nerve to judge me, slow clap from its branch hands, you are one piece of work, lady. Missy, I had one job and you broke my soul. You broke all our souls. Regret? Totally. But throwing that tree was a physical manifestation of my frustration of feeling helpless. Sometimes life is hard on these mom streets. I eventually talked about it with other moms at a bloggers conference, and one lady said that her family pissed her off so much once Thanksgiving, she threw the whole turkey out the front window. Turns out, I am not alone. Finger snaps if your kids have pushed you over the edge. Please, am I right? Okay, now my kids are 25 and 28. Truth talk, Maya hasn't decorated a tree since. <laughs> Thankfully though, here we are 15 years after the incident, and I'm happy to report she filled up her first Douglas fir at her new home in Los Angeles. She decked it out with two giant googly eyes and a few red plastic balls. I'd call that a win. And D'Angelo, he passed math class that year, and every year thereafter, he now works as an insurance agent, crunching numbers for clients. And he finally did apologize. Double win. Now, forever, I live with, remember when mom threw the Christmas tree? <laughs> Some call it a mommy meltdown. I call it the day I became boss. Scared straight, my friends, mom version. And you know what? I'll take that down as a form of Christmas magic. That was Kathy Kano Maria. Next up, Robert Pela has a story about cooking with his mom. This is Please Ignore the Woman with the Melted Spatula. So a couple of weeks ago, I typed up a sign and I stuck it to the front door of my mother's refrigerator. It was addressed to the women who take care of her when I am not at her house. I've put up with a lot during the 13 years I've taken care of this old lady and I was done. The sign said, one, do not call my mother Miss Mary. She has not been a miss since she married my father in 1946. This is not antebellum Atlanta. She is not a plantation owner, just call her Mary. Number two, don't talk baby talk to her. She is 93 years old, not 93 days old. 
Number three, don't ask my mother if she remembers anything. She doesn't remember you. She has late-stage Alzheimer's disease. She does not have a bad head cold. I stuck the sign on the refrigerator, and about an hour later, Amelia, the respite worker, showed up, and she read the sign, and she said, oh, okay. And then she turned to my mother and said, hello, Miss Mary, remember me? I opened my mouth to say, listen, bitch. <laughs> but then I stopped. Who the hell am I to complain about how people talk to my mother, considering how I talked to her myself when I was growing up? In my defense, my mother was kind of a drag. She was always standing in the way of my childhood plans to behave as an adult. When I was five, I announced that it was imperative that I learn to make crullers. I didn't know what crullers were, but I liked the word, and I knew that if I was really going to start hosting dinner parties, I needed to know how to bake. <laughs> My mother said, five-year-olds don't make crullers, they make messes of kitchens. You can bake when you grow up and have your own place. Go outside and play. Outside, I said. It's filthy out there. You do realize there's other children out there, right? I wanted to bake and she wasn't going to stop me. I pulled out an echo baking sheet, a giant Rubbermaid bowl, the black metal spatula with the melted handle. Pardon me, I said to the back of her head, but where do you keep the Pam? My mother was ignoring me. She was peeling potatoes into this beautiful blue ceramic bowl. She emptied the peels from the bowl into a bin swaddled in an avocado green trash can cozy she'd crocheted herself. I grew up in a house where garbage cans wore handmade sweaters <laughs> to make them prettier, to protect them. The chair legs all had specially fitted stockings, also crocheted by mom, so that the linoleum in the informal dining room didn't get scratched. The formal dining, dining room was carpeted, so the chairs that lived in there were allowed to go barefoot. My mother had a house full of children, four of them, boys, but somehow her house was always perfect. It looked like we were waiting for a photographer from House Beautiful to show up. The silver-framed photos on the piano sparkled. The tile floor glistened. The pocket doors my father built shone with six coats of varnish. But the kitchen was my mother's true masterpiece of cleanliness. The chrome drawer pulls were polished daily. The toaster, which wore a quilted cover with a neatly flared miniskirt, got its crumb drawer vacuumed after every use. Yeah, the linoleum was buffed daily with a special machine that didn't wear any clothing at all. You could go blind in that kitchen. It was so bright and shiny. I was five, and I wanted in there. I was too young to drive. No one would sell me cigarettes, but the one grown-up thing I could do was bake. Mom turned from the sink as I gathered what I'd need to make the perfect cruller, and she said what she always said, don't make a mess of my kitchen, boy. And I replied, as I always did. 
So you see, I had a lot of nerve telling my mother's caregivers how to speak to her. Eventually, and despite the fact that I spoke to my mother as if I hated her, she would usually give in and let me bake. You measure the flour after you sift it, not before, she'd say. Turn the heat down on the butter or it will brown. She taught me to separate egg whites from yolks using just the shell, how to form stiff peaks, how to roll paper-thin dough. She didn't want to. Little boys were supposed to play softball, not perfect their hollandaise. Not only was I messing up her gorgeous kitchen, I was messing up the order of things by being a sissy. I was giving her something else she'd have to compensate for by, I don't know, scotch guarding the inside of my father's sock drawer or, or knitting a poncho for the china cupboard. <laughs> Having a perfect house is very important. At some point, my mother decided that if her living room was spotless, it could make up for the fact that when she was nine months old, her own mother was taken to the Ohio State Hospital for the Insane, where she lived for 35 years until she died. My mother knew that an immaculate laundry room could help you forget that your teenage daughter got pregnant before she was married. Protecting the furniture and appliances by covering them up was sort of like forgetting that your brother-in-law was a small-time gangster or that you were a girl whose father maybe drank a little. Floor wax and furniture polish can fix a lot of things. When I was a kid, all I knew was I wanted to be in my mother's spotless kitchen, baking and making a mess. And if there's a moral to this story, it's be careful what you wish for. My mother still lives in that house, and I'm there most days taking care of her. I get her up at 8 a.m., I sit her at the table in the kitchen, the same kitchen I messed up as a kid, in the same chair which is still wearing those same knitted stockings. The same room where one day in 1969 she yelled, you're getting powdered sugar all over the floor. Today, I get to make a mess of her kitchen and she doesn't notice. Mom can't coach me on how to whisk dry ingredients or fold in an egg white anymore. She speaks these days mostly in nonsense sentences but I have all of her recipes. Each one of them is annotated with helpful hints to ensure that everything comes out perfect. Her recipe for rum balls, scribbled on the back of an envelope postmarked 1957, has a note, thaw frozen coconut. Her cookie press recipe is scrawled with the cryptic message, dough sticky Xmas 1971 added more flour 1972 perfect. Last week, I opened the recipe binder to the section marked Italian Christmas. Mom made all of these every year. Pizzelles and biscotti and kolache and pumpkin roll and tarali and cranberry bread and panettone and wedding cookies and ricotta cheesecake and, in case any Presbyterians drop by, sugar cookies shaped like Santa. <laughs> I decided to make Italian nut roll and anginettes and pizzelles and cranberry bread and those little snowballs rolled in powdered sugar. I yanked open a drawer and pulled out the same big white Tupperware bowl, the same Echo baking sheet, the same melted handed, handled spatula. These things are all still here in this room where I learned to bake when I was five. So is my mother and so am I. If you take really good care of things, they last forever. I creamed butter and I beat eggs and I melted chocolate. I muttered to myself, is this four cups of flour after I sifted or before? My mother, thinking I was speaking to her, looked up and said, tell them it's cushion time. 
62 bishops and a pepperoni. My foot is still history. I ignored her. Cut butter into flour until it resembles small peas, I read aloud. What in the hell does that even mean? This is an afternoon rug, my mother announced. He forgot housecoat candy. Your hair is too long. I looked up. My mother had said something that made sense. My hair is too long. Startled by her announcement, I dropped an egg on the floor, and as I watched the yolk ooze into the kitchen tile, I heard my mother's voice in my head, the voice from long ago, back when she still made sense and was always bitching about keeping everything perfect. Don't make a mess of my kitchen, boy. People talk to me about how much they think I'm going to miss my mother once she's gone, but the mother I miss has been gone for more than a decade. I have her recipes, her notes scribbled in the margins, tell me what to do to make everything perfect. Refrigerate dough before baking. Maybe then I'll get my old life back, the one where I never changed an adult diaper. Use self-rising flour. Maybe if I do, I can forget for a while that I'm the only one of my mother's five children caring for her today. Let butter come to room temperature. How do you say thank you to someone who let you mess up her perfect kitchen so that you could become the person you intended to be? How do you make up for mocking her when you were a snotty little kid? You return to that kitchen day after day, six days a week for 13 years. And you bake from her recipes, spinach pie, Amaretti, almond meringues, and you read the messages she left behind, things she wrote to herself when she still knew who she was, when her biggest concern was how much yeast to use. When she thought she could fix everything that had gone wrong with a spotless house and a perfect layer cake. And you're careful not to make a mess of her kitchen boy. Robert Pala. Kim Porter wraps up eating Christmas with a story about grocery shopping and so much more. We hope you enjoy It's a Cynical Life. I'm in line at Safeway unloading groceries onto the conveyor belt and planning what quippy observation I'll make once Dave, the cashier, starts ringing me up. I look over the items on the conveyor belt for anything that's humbling. It's Christmas 2014, and I'm buying a fruitcake for me, eggnog for my husband. I lie, it's also for me. <laughs> and a little gingerbread house kit for the kids. But I also have vegetables, which is why I feel virtuous enough to go through Dave's line. I have a crush on Dave. If crush is the right word to describe the compulsion I feel to make an aloof person rue the day they underestimated me. <laughs> Less romance, more revenge, really. I've been skittish around Dave for years, since that time he made a possibly snarky comment about the quantity of potato chips I was buying. I say possibly because he was muttering, and I am prone to shame, so I can't be 100%. But I thought he said... There are other food groups. <laughs> and so I just decided to go ahead and be offended just in case. 
How very dare he. He doesn't know me. I'm cool as hell. I'm gonna make this asshole wish he was me. <laughs> Disdain triggers me. If you ever wanna trap me, put a cynic in a cage as bait. Instruct them to withhold their approval from me, and I will climb straight in and remain there until I win them over or die trying. <laughs> like with my dad, who died years ago while I was still trying. I don't know anything about Dave, but that doesn't stop me from imagining that I do. I imagine he's single, because even though he's cute in a Woody Harrelson kind of way, he seems self-righteous. You should see him handing out those Monopoly game pieces like his soul is dying. <laughs> I imagine he has a kill your TV bumper sticker on his car because I've noticed a sort of technology weary quality to the way that he sighs and avoids direct eye contact with the cash register. I imagine he studied philosophy in college but didn't finish, which is why he's always a little bit mad. He bags groceries like a perfectionist with too few outlets. I imagine he loathes anything sappy or manipulative, like when they were doing that charity fundraiser last year and management made them go woohoo over the loudspeaker. Dave's uninflected woohoo was everything to me. He's judgmental, sure, yeah, but. He's, his authenticity is unimpeachable. I imagine he's great at trivia, but hates the trivial. His tolerance for pop culture having been eroded by his proximity to these tabloid magazines for all these years. I imagine that Christmas makes him rant about capitalism to his housemates. I imagine he has housemates. I, took, I, I look at my groceries with an eye for, you know, what's funny. Maybe the fruitcake? People really like to hate fruitcake. Over the years, I've figured out what amuses Dave. Harsh truths, astute observations, and surprise literary references. <laughs> Disarming Dave has been exhilarating, but terrifying. It's only a matter of time before he realizes I'm not the cool cat I pretend to be. I'm actually a tender-hearted dope who's easily undone by anything remotely sweet. I've spent my whole life cultivating an edgy facade to conceal my gushy innards, first from my dad, who mocked sweetness like it was in his mission statement, and then later, after dad died, from the string of aloof boyfriends who stood in as his proxy. When I slip up and get saccharine in public, I'm quick to ridicule myself, beating everyone to the punch. But, you know, it's exhausting being always the puncher and the punchy. And the problem is, it's not enough just to lampoon yourself. If you want to be convincing, you also have to deride the sappy thing itself. It's a deride or die moment. You can, and you can ruin pretty much anything by looking for the shadow it casts and asking yourself, how is this so-called sweet thing actually an asshole? I know, because I've murdered pretty much every tender notion that used to make me dingy with joy. And at no time is that more evident than at Christmas. Elf on a shelf, asshole. <laughs> Black Friday, oh, asshole. 
Santa Claus, have you seen how he treated Rudolph? Ugh. But there is one Christmas tradition which I hold sacred and have managed to guard against ruination for all these years. It's a wonderful life. If you ever want to trap me, get a TV and stick it in a little cage and put on It's a Wonderful Life and play it on a loop and I will climb right in there and stay there weeping like a punctured milk carton until the day I die. <laughs> I love that effing movie. From the very beginning when Clarence is up in heaven and he asks if George is sick and the other angel goes, no, worse, he's discouraged. To the very end, when the whole town belts out old Lang Syne, don't you want to live in that town? I love when jo little kid George goes, Mr. Gower, you're hurting my ear. I love the run on the bank. When George has stepped out of the office and he's trying to placate this mob and it's all silent for a moment and he says, now, now just remember that this thing is not quite as black as it appears. And then in the next seconds, the silence is broken by a siren going by. It's perfect. I love all of Uncle Billy's in inexplicable pets. He's got that crow, and an owl, that squirrel. I love when George is up on the bridge. He's like riding his knuckles across his teeth and he's working up the courage to jump. And suddenly there's Clarence just smiling in the background like a puppy with a bow tie. Or when Clarence grants George's wish, and like that, the wind changes so abruptly it blows that guardhouse door open, and Clarence has to rush over there in his nightshirt to close it. And how Nick, the bartender, my favorite, goes, Out you two pixies go! Oh, I just love how George meticulously turns his little watch pocket inside out, looking for Zuzu's petals. And how he stumble runs down Main Street going, Merry Christmas, Emporium. Every part of this movie makes me cry. One time I befriended a woman who was visiting from Australia. Over lunch in an Ethiopian restaurant, I asked her, do you watch uh, It's a Wonderful Life in Australia? And she said that she had never even heard of it. So I decided to summarize the whole movie for her. Okay, so it's about this guy named George Bailey. And my voice just creamed out of control. I caught a little laugh and a sob at the same time. I tried again. He's from this town called Bedford Falls. It was immediately clear to me that I wouldn't be able to tell this story without scream crying like a lunatic. But that didn't stop me from trying. I spent the next 20 solid minutes hysterically yelling the plot at her. She sat across from me, eyes darting like a hostage. Later, book, book end, later that same woman made the mistake of telling me that she had never seen old Yeller. It's a Wonderful Life is the last sentimental thing I've managed not to destroy, which is why I rarely talk about it, just in case I'm tempted to sacrifice it to look cool. So here I am at Safeway. Dave moves the bar out of the way and he starts scanning my groceries. I haven't thought up anything funny to say yet. I was hoping maybe some banter would arise organically, but Dave seems kind of sad. No, worse, discouraged. 
He's, dis he's been disgruntled since Albertsons bought, bought out Safeway last year. A few weeks ago, I asked him why I haven't seen him around much lately, and he said that after 10 years with the company, being a lifer, they slashed his schedule and moved him to nights. He rings up my fruitcake without comment. Suddenly, my fruitcake seems inauthentic. My eggnog, eggnog is objectively disgusting. This gingerbread kit, what kind of shitty mother buys a prefab gingerbread kit? God, even my vegetables seem desperate for approval. Soon our, our transaction will be complete and I'll have lost this opportunity to prove once and again that I'm cool enough. God, why do I even care what this probable asshole thinks of me? And more importantly, when will I finally be able to trace an unhealthy impulse down to its origin and not find, did my dead dad really love me, sitting there like a poison kernel at the heart of it? Not yet, apparently. I feel dull. No, worse, discouraged. I notice that there's a long line of customers at the Wells Fargo Bank in the front of the store. And I turn to Dave and I hitch my thumb, and to my horror, I throw my favorite movie under the bus. I've never really seen one, but that's got all the earmarks of being a run on the bank. I'm surprised by the mocking tone in my voice. I hadn't set out to do that. It's as if I just said, are you familiar with It's a Wonderful Life? Isn't it just the hokiest? Shall we lampoon it together? I glance at Dave to see if he's impressed or embarrassed for me. He looks up from my kale to the line of bank customers, his hands still moving mechanically, scanning, beeping in rhythm. I've invited some dude I barely like to mock my last best Christmas tradition. I feel transparent and ashamed. But Dave, Dave does something I could never have anticipated. He looks me in the eye and he becomes Jimmy Stewart. He says, whoa, 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 no, but you're thinking of this place all wrong, as if you, I had the money back in the safe. My money's not here. Well, your money's in Joe's house. That's right next to yours in the Kennedy house and a hundred others. You're lending them the money to build, and then they're going to pay it back when, they, when, it's, when they can, the best that they can. Now listen, now listen to me. If Potter gets a hold of this building and loan, there'll never be another decent house built in this town. Joe, you had one of those Potter houses, didn't you? Well, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what he charged you for that broken-down shack? Can't you understand what's happening? Don't you see what's happening? Potter isn't selling. Potter's buying. And why? Because we're panicking and he's not. That's why. Now, we can get through this all right, but we got to stick together. We got to have faith in each other. And with that, he sort of trails off and begins to bag my groceries. <laughs> Only now he has a little smile in the corner of his mouth. And his face is kind of flushed. He made magic and he knows it. <laughs> oh, I feel giddy. I swipe my bank card. He looks at me as if for approval. This Dave is not the Dave I thought I knew. My Dave never would have known every word of that monologue, nor had a perfect Jimmy Stewart impersonation in his pocket ready to whip out at the flimsiest invitation like a couple of Zuzu's petals. 
That movie is my a gospel to me, and even I can't quote it word for word. I feel my eyes misting, and I'm torn between letting myself feel this sweet moment or striking a derisive pose. I risk it. I love that movie. Me too, he says. I watch it every year. It feels like a gust of fresh air is blown through the store, through my whole life, really. Like the winds have changed, like that. If Dave's not who I thought he was, maybe nobody's who I think they are. Maybe I'm not who I think I am. Maybe my dad wasn't, or maybe he was, and maybe I don't have to care. Maybe I'm free to just be whoever I want to be. Dave hands me my receipt and thanks me by name. That's the Safeway shtick. And I'm sent out into the world to contemplate all the sweet things I could enjoy again. If only I have the courage. That was Kim Porter. And that's it for this episode of the Barflies podcast. Special thanks to my co-curator, Katie Bravo, podcast producer, Sarah Ventry, Charlie Levy, David Maroney, Jessica Hill, and the rest of the folks at Valley Bar and the Van Buren, and to Calexico for our theme music. Learn more about Barflies, including upcoming workshops and performances at barflies.org.